the biggest drawback from fasted training for someone that, that's very fit is that they're burning a lot of calories in a given session. A, a very high-level athlete can burn 1,000 calories pretty easily. And so the hole they're going to dig themselves is much greater. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is season number seven. Today I'm chatting with Jeff Rothschild, a registered dietitian with a master's degree in nutritional science. Jeff works with Olympians, triathletes competing at Kona, and professional tennis players. Jeff is currently conducting his PhD research under the guidance of Dr. Daniel Plews at the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand. He's looking at the effects of pre-exercise nutrition interventions on the adaptations to endurance training. And I'm looking forward to picking his brain and diving into those topics in this episode. Before we get started, a quick shout out. Athlete Performance Nutrition is hosting the second annual Football Performance Nutrition Virtual Summit this June 13th to 15th. The speaker lineup is fantastic. Join us to hear Dr. Matt Frakes kicking off the summit with performance nutrition in practice. John Parenti, Director of Nutrition of the Miami Dolphins, talking halftime nutrition. Kate Calloway, Director of Performance Nutrition for the Carolina Panthers, talking injury nutrition beyond collagen and KCALs of Rugby Union in Ireland, talking the new science of nutrition for sleep. More fantastic talks on day number two with Dr. Jenna Macciocci, talking optimizing immune function for athletes. Abigail O'Connor, Director of Performance Nutrition at University of Michigan, talking modifying body composition, a team approach. Dr. Mike Clark, mental performance coach at the University of Arizona, talking strategies for having hard conversations, and many, many more. Join us June 13th to 15th for the second annual FPN Virtual Summit. Register for free at athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits for all the details. Awesome. Let's do this. My conversation with Jeff Rothschild. Enjoy. Jeff, really appreciate you taking the time out today. Thanks. I'm uh, happy to chat. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to diving into, you know, your work around endurance, nutrition and endurance sport. And I think maybe before we even jump into that, it would be great to get a little bit more about on your background and how you got into sport nutrition. Yeah. Um, I've been focused on this for about 12 or 15 years or so. Did a master's degree in nutrition and then focused on a private practice setting for a while, um, primarily with endurance athletes. Uh, that was in Los Angeles. And then in 2019, I moved to Auckland, New Zealand to do my PhD, uh, which is technically exercise physiology, but really kind of a nutrition focused sitting on the, the intersection between physiology and nutrition. And um, I recently submitted that, so I haven't officially defended it yet, but it's hopefully the bulk of the work is done. And now, and now I work uh, as a performance nutritionist at High Performance Sport New Zealand. So working with um, not exactly endurance, so more um, a, a mix of athletes. So focused on track and field athletes in athletics and uh, kayak, so sprint kayak. Tremendous. And for yourself, in terms of your background, were you an endurance athlete or were you? Yeah, I mean, I I, I um, grew up actually really focused on tennis, but um, as an adult, it's been more focused on endurance, cycling, and triathlon. I'm very average, but but as as far as the exercise I like to do, it's mostly kind of not, now mostly cycling. But I have done you know some triathlons and things like that. Yeah, it gets tougher and tougher to carve out time, doesn't it? As the years, as the years start to go by, I think a great place to start here is talking physiology. You know, oftentimes we'll talk physiology first, in a sense, to practitioners or sport dietitians, performance nutritionists, 
SNC coaches when it comes to nutrition because it's easy to jump straight to protocols and strategies and plans without really kind of understanding physiology. So you know, can you walk us through your process in terms of when you're working with a new sport, say in your new role or a sport that you've, or a team sport, maybe that you haven't worked with before, you know, how do you deconstruct that in terms of understanding you know, what, what the demands are on the athlete? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. My um, current role in, in athletics and, and kayak really covers quite, quite a range because obviously in athletics, we've got your throwers and your jumpers and 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 then the the runners of all distances so um that is like that that is essentially like five sports or or more um not to mention all just the individual differences and, and nuances there but um and then you have kayak which is even a bit of a range there because there's there's some shorter distance like a 200 meter uh races and, yeah. and it can be 500 or a thousand meters so there's a there's a range there um so for my day-to-day um the, the kayak nutrition is is focused more or I, I should say it's it it resembles more how I might approach working with you know endurance athletes cyclists triathletes just because of the training load is high and there's uh you know the range in, in uh, high intensity sessions low intensity sessions um so that in in my 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 brain we kind of think about things like you know day-to-day carbohydrate periodization and um you know making sure that the you're fueling appropriately for the given session. Um, whereas in athletics, at least kind of with the athletes I'm working with now, it's more about um, making sure the body count sure. is optimal for the training season or the, the goals. And that obviously can range for a discus uh, as thrower versus a, a, a pole vaulter. You know, there's a, a huge range there. But to me, that that's more the focus is body comp, appropriate fueling, you know, energy availability, all, all those kind of things, as opposed to shifting their nutrition from day to day as much. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of different body types, right? When you get her getting into the field sports and as well as the track track side of things, you know, curious to see how that's informed or affected your practice in a sense of working with a sprint kayaker. I imagine is obviously pretty well built from the from the waist up to a to a, a discus or a shot putter who's, who's built differently. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, and and so uh, it it keeps it interesting. It, it's been fun for me. Um, uh, also getting learning more about new sports and um yeah yeah you just kind of figure out what what each person needs and um you know you figure out the season goals and the the longer term goals with the coach and the athlete and, and it's yeah it's been definitely a different process compared to to in like kind of the traditional like long distance triathlon athletes awesome well what's the perfect way to segue into into your work you know what's the best place to start yeah i guess um you know thinking about my phd um the the, the kind of overarching theme is is essentially kind of like what wanted to see what what and this was more focused on endurance athletes kind of you know uh, longer distance athletes um what was curious like what are people doing essentially that was that i guess we could think about three parts of my phd what one the first part is like what are people actually doing mm-hmm. in terms of what they're eating before uh focus on pre-exercise nutrition so that kind of led to the second the section of my phd which is kind of investigating some of those things so does um this does fast training of, of imperial performance like during interval training session do you burn more fat um you know, uh, does it affect muscle signaling? All those kind of questions that was kind of investigated in, in the second chunk, and we can get into some of the specifics there. And then finally, I, I looked at um, what are people really actually doing? And I had uh, about 55 athletes tracking kind of everything for, for 12 weeks. So that would be all their diet, like every day, their diet, their training, their HRV and their sleep. And we're able to kind of see what, what are people like actually doing in terms of adjusting their intake with their training and, and things like that, as opposed to what they said they were doing. So those were kind of the three sections. And again, we can kind of 
dive back in anywhere there. Yeah, what's the best place to start? I started my PhD with a survey of about 2000 athletes, figuring out, you know, kind of how people think about pre-exercise nutrition, meaning how, how many people do fasted training? Do they eat differently before easier heart sessions? Do they eat differently before shorter long sessions? Getting a sense of, of how that changes based on things like sex, competitive level, do uh, higher level athletes do fasted training more or less than, than lower level athletes and, and things like that. And well, the answer to that one is, is showing less. So the elite athletes are, are doing fasted training, for example, less than the lower level athletes. Um, males tend, tend to do fasted training more than females and people on low carb diets tend to do more fasted training than people on higher carb mixed diets. In regards to the elite athletes, curious your thoughts around obviously performing the fasted training. Is it the performance benefits that were generally cited as the primary reason? Was there influence from just friends, family, et cetera, following certain dietary trends? What did you, what did you uncover there? Yeah, I think it was, it was largely, um, well, it was, it was a mix, but, um, for some people it's gut comfort for some people it's doing an early swim session. I mean, triathletes tend to swim at like five in the morning, you know, and, and some people just don't want to get the food in at that time. For some people it's trying to practicality, right? Yeah, that's right. And some people it's trying to increase fat oxidation, um, and, and that's kind of the, the main driver for a lot of people is thinking, I'm going to burn more fat. Anything else in that first section? Yeah. So the big takeaway there was like uh, a, a lot of people actually, I, overall, like a lot of people do fasted training. And that was, it's kind of sounds obvious, but before that, there was really no, no, no understanding of how many people are actually doing fasted training. There was a few papers in, in small groups of elite athletes. Um, but as far as like the larger, like endurance population, um, it was, it was a little unclear. Tremendous. And as you went down to sort of the middle groups and the the general public on that side of things. Yeah, it was it was more common, and and some of the re reasons were you know some people like had been told to, and some people didn't know why they were doing it. And some people thought there was a performance benefit, or they would get some benefit, and then some people avoided fasted training because they thought it would be in, in, impair their performance. So it, it was interesting to see this really um, at, at all the, across the different levels, um, the, um, the the really opposite viewpoints. Like some people think fasted training is going to help, and some people explicitly think it's going to hurt their training. And so um, I guess in, in a way they both can mm -hmm. be right, but also they both can't be right. So that's kind of what led me to, to further like say, okay, um, let's, let's look at some of the details here. Awesome. And if we go back to that the elite group and then to the second section of the PhD. The yeah. So the, the, the next kind of, the, the next thing I had done was um, I, I looked at, and this wasn't elite, elite, but, but very well, well-trained cyclists. Um, I had them do a, a intervals training session in th basically three, three different days once in the fasted state, once after a carbohydrate-rich breakfast, um, and once after a, a low-carb, a protein, such a protein, uh, protein shake and some peanut butter. And so, um, and, and the, the carb breakfast, you know, one of the things with a lot of the, the kind of the fed versus fasted studies is they might feed someone like 200 grams of carbs at breakfast, which is just not realistic. So for me, it was like, it was one gram per kilogram. So like yeah, 70 grams, carb 75, something realistic, okay. um, essentially a jam sandwich and some sports, sports drink. Yeah. Um, but fat oxidation, th this is not surprising that it is higher in the fasted state than, than if you've had a carbohydrate-rich breakfast. But one of the, the newer areas of research that I certainly wasn't the first, but it's, it's I think, pretty interesting is the low-carb breakfast. So having a protein shake and, and, and or some, you know, protein and fat, you're going to burn essentially, maybe not exactly, but almost as much fat as if you were in the fasted state, but you're going to be fed. And this really, then, when we think about uh, uh, the, the higher-level population, the higher level athletes, the biggest, in my mind, the biggest drawback from, from fasted training for someone that's, that's very fit is that they're burning a lot of calories in a given session, right? It's and not only are they training higher, 
amounts per yeah. week, but you know, so per hour, someone a, a very high level athlete can burn you know a thousand calories pretty easily, whereas a lower level athlete might burn three or four hundred calories on on the kind of a, an easy ride, let's say. And so the the hole they're going to dig themselves is much greater at a higher level when you can when you have a higher VO two max and, and things. So that means a faster training session is going to really put them in the hole calorie wise. Um, and so there's a real utility if you want to burn more fat during, let's say, a, a zone two kind of bike ride <clears throat> without digging yourself such a calorie hole, you can have a low carb breakfast. You can have you know eggs and avocado, or you can have a protein shake and peanut butter or something, get those calories and not really impair your fat oxidation. Yeah. And that I think is an underappreciated uh, strategy. I found that actually in, in the survey, in the first study that like asked how many people did a low carb breakfast and, and you know very few people did. So I think that's one of the most uh, underutilized things is, is for someone that wants to kind of get the quote, benefits and we could talk about if there are any um in in a minute but uh for someone that wants to kind of get the physiology of a fast session without creating such a big energy deficit i really see um a, a protein kind of protein fat breakfast as a, a really good alternative yeah i mean it's a great win that definitely translates well to even team sport for for certain athletes depending on the schedule and obviously the bias in team sport mm. towards the end of the day games are at night um you know what the athletes are doing in the morning there's there's certainly a lot of room there to be able to, like you said, re obviously recovering, not preparing for the session to come, but also recovering from the sessions that happened yesterday and the day before as well. So being yeah. able to get that protein bolus in, in the morning is a big one. Uh, well, I think also worth noting. So one of the reasons people generally avoid fasted training uh, is that they say that, you know, they won't perform as well. That, that really becomes apparent after about 75 to 90 minutes or, or even let's just say an hour. So if your session let, let's just okay. we're not talking about race performance here i wouldn't you know no one should race fasted but like it, an interval workout right some people say i, I you know it's generally recommended yeah. to eat before interval sure. training sessions uh but you know people some people don't want to do that and and well so if the exercise is longer than an hour there's going to start to be a benefit of fed versus fasted training but most people or many people and maybe at the lower mm -hmm. level the leads might train longer but you know a lot of people do an interval workout and it's an hour or so, you know, you, you do a warm up, knock out, you know, whatever your intervals and, and you're done around an hour. What I found there was there was no performance difference between fed, uh, fasted or fed carbs or fed protein. And there was no difference in, in hunger also. So basically one of the big takeaways, again, from me, from my perspective is if you're doing a, a, an interval workout, let's say like a weekday morning or something, and you don't want to eat, you don't have to, that there's, there's no compelling, um, reason to, it's going to affect your performance. And the reason is your muscle glycogen is the same, whether you've, you're, you're fed or fasted. It's, it's, you know, you wake up in the morning, your liver glycogen will be depleted, which is why after around an hour, then you're going to start to see those mm -hmm. performance declines, but your muscle glycogen is fine. So you, and, and your muscle glycogen is going to deplete at the same rate if you're fed or fasted. Like, so if you wake up in the morning and have a bagel and then do your interval workout, or if you just wake up and do it fasted, your muscle glycogen is, is going to deplete at the same level and, and you're going to get through the workout. So or people that like are are afraid they're gonna be too hungry or or bonk during the, their workout. Um, I don't I don't think that's I, I wouldn't expect that to happen again if we're talking about like a one hour workout. So I think that's a, a really important takeaway for people that you know you, you don't need to eat before those kind of sessions. Seems particularly important for the sort of general public, or oftentimes we'll talk about the coaching staff or performance yeah. staff yeah. who are trying to stay fit amongst all the demands of competitive seasons, and it's like. That, that idea of yeah not being able to push yourself during a session is certainly one that still percolates around so knowing that you could get these sessions in under an hour and do some intervals and you could still put out some really good work oftentimes they're done yeah. early in the morning because people are busy whether it's work teams kids the rest of it uh and still 
get all those performance uh, still achieve that performance during the session, right? Yeah. And so, you know, back to the, the, the higher level athletes that are training more, I wouldn't recommend that because it's, that's more about, they, they could create a 12 or 1500 calorie deficit uh, and then, yeah. and then out of the rest of the training on top of that. So that's not ideal from that standpoint, but from just purely the standpoint of, you know, someone training, let's say eight hours a week or, or, you know, six, eight, 10 hours a week, they can definitely handle that. And, and I wouldn't expect any performance declines in that case. Yeah. Context is so key in terms of what the right strategy is to be able to achieve the outcome. Yeah, right? Exactly. And so that kind of dovetails into the, the, one of the next things I did was um, kind of, you know, and everyone, not just low carb, but people are, there's a big emphasis on, on fat oxidation during training, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but, but, you know, it's something that a lot of people try to, to tweak so that they might do a faster training session um, or they might, you know, do whatever, avoid sports drink, or there's, there's a lot of things that people will, will do to try to adjust their, their fat oxidation during exercise. Mm-hmm. And then I was curious kind of how, how much control or what, what are the things that really affect that? So, you know, we know um, that lower intensity work exercises generally rely more on fat than higher intensity exercise. That's, that's nothing new. And we also know that as exercise duration extends, um, the fat, the relative contribution of fat will go up. Yeah. And as you, you know, eat versus not eat, like there's a lot of factors individually that we know this lever or that lever will affect like more or less fat. But what I was unclear about um, was what happens when two or three of those levers get moved at the same time. Like what happens when you fat, when you're fasted and you do high intensity or when you, the, the dura, uh, duration goes on and your intensity goes up, you know, there, there's, there's these different yeah. combinations that, that were really unclear. And so um, I kind of looked at the, the analysis where kind of trying to understand all the different factors and what's most important for fat oxidation and how much control over it. And kind of the, the big takeaways are that um, your daily diet actually has one of the biggest um, influences on on like how much fat you'll burn let's just say during a given cycling workout what what uh percentage of fat you're going to burn for example that's most driven by like your your daily fat intake so being on a lower carb higher fat diet is going to crank that up mm-hmm. um and being on a higher carb diet will turn that down um the pre-exercise meal do, does affect it so if you have a high carb meal that's going to adjust your fat oxidation duration is a big one though so as your your duration extends your fat oxidation is going to go up um, and this is like supported by a lot of any other studies, but it's really interesting that, you know, even if you're taking sports drink during a session, you're going to still, you can still burn a lot of fat as, as you start riding for two, three, four hours, you're going to be burning a ton of fat, um, regardless of essentially if you're fed or fasted, or if you're taking sports drink during. So that's another kind of from a practical side, I think thing that people are maybe underappreciating, say someone w- wakes up and wants to do a fasted workout or, you know, has a low carb breakfast and, and they, they run a ride for longer than let's call it 90 minutes. Um, they might start suffering through a two-hour ride or three-hour ride on on water only in in the um, you know, trying to to burn more fat. But um, if they take sports drink during, it's it's it will have some small effect on on the fat oxidation, but not a lot. Again, as the duration extends, so and and with that like low glycogen training, even more so. So I, I think one of the most underutilized things, if someone is doing two sessions kind of in in close proximity without fully restocking their glycogen between sessions, they will often do that second one. Let's say, say you do an interval session at night and then the next morning, a fasted easy session. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I think you could take some, you could take some carbs right before exercise and not affect your muscle glycogen. So you could rescue your session a bit more and, and still get the, all the same signaling stuff that happens in your muscle or, or most of it. Or if you really want to start fasted, you could certainly take carbs during a kind of delayed carbohydrate approach uh, that Tim T- Podlegar has been studying um, and, and also get most of the same kind of fat burning effect. So you don't need to 
kind of do it fasted and and take water only that's that's kind of un, un, an unnecessary stress that is not um yeah it's not not giving you any extra uh, and only gonna impair just make you feel crummier yeah and is there a general dose that you might give this sort of recreational endurance athlete who might be engaging like, in that in terms yeah of like in that context that? like yeah, like I mean, I'll take a gel in, in the midway through, or or a sports drink. Like you know, if if 20, in that example, let's say, some, let's say someone does it, yeah, that'd be fine, or whatever. You know, kind of to to whatever suits your taste. Like if someone does a an interval workout at night and wants to do that, a lower, you know, doesn't have too much carbs overnight, and then wants to do a fasted training session. That's let's call it ninety minutes or two hours. Um, yeah, just you know, start out with maybe the first bottle is water, and the second bottle is sports drink. Or just from a sports drink uh, from the get go, or have a couple dates beforehand. Because when you have, like, if you have breakfast, it takes about three hours from a carbohydrate breakfast to start filling up your glycogen. Mm -hmm. The benefit of doing these, or a lot of the benefit of these low glycogen training sessions, is the signaling inside the muscle. And the glycogen is the, 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 a key signal, right? And so if you have, um, you know, even a, a, a peanut butter and jam sandwich right before your workout, there's no much that's not going to restock any glycogen. Your glycogen is still going to be at that lower level. It's just going to mm -hmm. go to your liver and, and make you feel a little bit better. So um, I think there's there's room for more carbs during the, the kind of low-carb sessions. Fantastic. And, and Jeff, can we sort of pin it there for a minute and maybe do a quick physiology review for, for some of the listeners around, yeah. you know, as glycogen levels deplete, mm. some of the internal signals, you know, AMPK, obviously, you know, potent fuel-sensing enzyme, you know, what's going on? Yeah, um, when we're depleting glycogen with, with some of the signaling that's happening at the cellular level. Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Um, and that's that that was also kind of can dovetail into an, another study I looked at um, AMPK signaling. But basically, um, there's there's if we think about we do exercise and we want to get fitter in, in, in the context of endurance. There's there's these different signaling pathways that that are signaling, let's say, more mitochondria or or you know some of these the favorable changes we want. So mm -hmm. you start at the at the top if we imagine kind of a um, almost a flow chart we have the exercise stimulus so that would be kind of volume and intensity and then it affects there's there's the um the energy sensing there's there's like let's just say four different buckets there's one where you, there's energy sensing so that means like the ampk pathway so the the fuel gauge in the car so is there mm -hmm. energy in the cell um and we think about atp is our energy source so as amp and a, a uh, dp get increased relative to atp so basically as atp gets used that mm -hmm. changes the ratio of AMP, ADP to ATP. As mm -hmm. that ratio changes, that sends this kind of the fuel gauge. It says, hey, low fuel alert. And that sends, that kind of kicks off this, this certain signaling pathway. That ATP increases. is falling and that ratio is increasing. And then we get the exactly. signal that's soon being sent. Yeah. And, it, it, yeah. and then, and that kind of leads to some, some, let's just say largely beneficial changes. Um, generally speaking, we also have uh, reactive oxygen species, those are signaling so that they kind of the oxidants that that happen, those, those act as signaling molecules. Um, and that also, in, in their own way, leads to some beneficial changes. We also have the contraction of the muscle. So there's like calcium signaling. Basically, when the muscle's contraction itself, um, kind of uh, distinct from any kind of fuel signaling, it's, it's the, the contraction itself, that is going to lead to some signaling. And then there's also, um, there's like... Uh, um, fuel pathways. So, so the, um, glycogen and, and free fatty acid levels, those are also kind of leading to possible changes. And so the fact that there's all these kind of like, I don't know if redundant is the right word, but there's these overlapping mechanisms. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we could, we could look at an acute study and, and someone might say, um, 
vitamin C, or, you know, these high dose antioxidants kind of impairs important signaling during an acute bout of exercise. But then you can scale back and say 12 weeks of training with vitamin C didn't really affect the overall increase in mitochondria. Like, and that's yeah. because there's just, you know, there's this overlapping uh, mechanisms that, that are going to lead to changes. Yeah, sort of you a three dimensional problem and not just sort of a exactly. pathway that's impacting, right? Yeah. And so um, to, to zone in on a couple of the things re related to nutrition side of it, um, yeah, the glycogen is is one of the key signals. So as glycogen, and it's a little unclear if it's as glycogen depletes or if it's just getting to the low glycogen, but I think um, my sense is it, basically it's with glycogen is where you end the session. And that's, you know, again, the, the fuel for the work required, you know, crew has, has kind of shown that nicely. And, and um, my and AMPK analysis I did as well is it doesn't matter where you start. It's where you end in terms of glycogen. That's going to kind of lead to some signaling. Okay. So that means, of course, if you have a long hard session, you can start with a higher level of glycogen and then because you're going to go through it. And if you have mm -hmm. a shorter or easier session, you, you can you should start a little bit lower so that you end kind of in this in this kind of key, uh, let's say, sweet spot. Okay. There's also a role of free fatty acid signaling. So what that is like as we we are burning fat, we're liberating fat during exercise. Um, th those the fat um, those those free fatty acids also not only serve as a fuel source, but they also seem to serve as a signaling agent. And so there, if there's a benefit to fa uh, fasted training, I still think it's kind of an if, but I, I think there might be some. It's probably through the the signaling of the, the elevated free fatty acids that affects things related to fat oxidation. So I guess just to kind of step back. There is all these. There's a number of different pathways for us to to, to signal and and improve, uh, make more mitochondria, get all the adaptations we want, and we can affect it by things like affecting our glycogen, by increasing free fatty acids, or by just kind of the training itself and and or. Um, if we circle back to the reactive oxygen species, curious your thoughts on. You touched a little bit on it. So in terms of high dose supplementation with antioxidants, in terms of the training which, you know, I, th I think you possibly answered already, but so that question, and then just in terms of an athlete's diet, the amount of, of, of antioxidants, polyphenols, you know, how do you see that role in terms of recovery performance? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I, I think it, it, it's still certainly unclear. I, my feeling is from food, it's just not an issue. I don't think you can eat too much, um, antioxidants. Like you don't have to worry about limiting fruit or vegetables or anything. Um, the supplementation, I, I generally wouldn't recommend like a vitamin C, vitamin E, those kind of things in terms of like, especially around training. If someone's sick or traveling, maybe there's some different um, circumstances, but generally, yeah, I would avoid high dose vitamin C, for example, uh, especially around training. But it's not, you know, again, it's it, it's not so clear that like, it's not going to like ruin all adaptations, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I was just going to say, and further away from training, if you're training in the morning and you're taking something at night or vice versa, yeah, that, that would probably much less. I would think so. Yeah. And, and mitigate you know, the, things. Yeah, I think so. And the, the polyphenols, I mean, there's, there's such a broad category. So um, mm -hmm. things like, you know, beetroot juice and, and tart cherry juice and a lot of things we use for recovery. I mean, there's there's probably some interesting interactions there. Um, I, my feeling is beetroot juice. Well, one, we, we kind of um, use it synonymously with the term nitrate or dietary nitrate because obviously it's high in nitrate. Mm -hmm. But comparing um, studies that have compared beetroot juice to to like ni just nitrate salts um, there, there's yeah. definitely an advantage to the beetroot juice um, in terms of the adaptations or the performance um, so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there that's just the, the plant 
the world of those plant compounds is so complex, certainly beyond, beyond my uh, understanding. And I, I think overall as, as a um, community's understanding, because, you know, beetroot juice, uh, like I said, it, it's, it's outperforms nitrate. So there's something more in the beetroot juice than just the nitrate, even though we kind of just call it nitrate. Um, for, so sure, there's, for sure. Yeah. So you got polyphenols, you got nitrates, you got all the, obviously other plant yeah. compounds all in this soup that are impacting yeah, exactly. pathways that we're um, describing. So difficult to tease out, right? Yeah, but with that said, I think with beetroot juice, there is some benefit. There's some um, some research show, showing it and, and, and some theoretical rationale for it helping adaptation. So in terms of endurance training, mm -hmm. like it's uh, related to muscle fiber type or some other things. So it's not to say all kind of these things are bad for adaptations. Um, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of complexity there, but the, the kind of the, I think the bottom line of my feeling anyway right now is I wouldn't take a high dose antioxidant around training. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we continue that on with just recovery and sort of the longevity of the athlete, and again, talk about just dietary intakes of, of, of things like polyphenols. If you had an athlete who, let's say, had a moderate intake and you had another athlete with a sort of high chronic intake, when we look at some of these pathways, if we had to again, hypothesize in terms of you know, recovery or, or benefits around longevity, appreciate that most things in life are bell curve shaped. So just wondering where you think an inflection point might be. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I I don't know. I mean, I, I think sometimes um, we definitely see from low to high, there's obviously a benefit, but it's always that question of when someone's got a moderately good diet, how much do we really hit home on, you know, yeah, I, the vegetables and the antioxidants versus looking in some other area to, to achieve some some benefits, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I, I, I kind of pick my battles with some people as, when, when someone's younger. I, I, you know, I used to think yeah. vegetables and fruits would kind of, I'd tell, I would think it's kind of more about long-term health, but I, I actually do think there's a, a key role of in, in the daily recovery for fruits and vegetables. So I, I think it's definitely important, but it's, it's hard to take someone who doesn't really eat many fruits and vegetables or only likes one or two or is super picky and trying to, you know, well, that's obviously a work on, and you can, if you can improve someone's diet quality and variety, that's a really good thing. And I think the variety is important. I always, I often tell people, um, they, there's that advice just to kind of eat a rainbow. And, and I used to always think yeah. it was very trite advice and it is kind of like, you know, it sounds kind of lame yeah. on the surface, <laughs> but it, I think it's actually really that's, important because the yeah, things that of course that give the color to the fruit or vegetable are, are the things that give us a lot of health benefits. So I do try to encourage variety. So in terms of like how, how much I don't, really shoot for amounts for people just because it's i find that Difficult. to be a, a, a tough sell but i do often encourage variety so if someone is only buying like frozen spinach or whatever you know you can get them or, or, or certain fruits you know trying to definitely encourage uh, the different colors that that's actually something I've, I've gotten much more um kind of proactive on yeah as a simple heuristic it definitely uh despite sounding somewhat cheesy at times it, do, it yeah. does kind of cover the bases and it does stick with people doesn't it they sort of remember that one and can easy to conceptualize when at the grocery store. If we go back to that second section of the PhD, is there anything that we haven't touched on that? Uh... Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the the AMPK, which we mentioned, so again, yeah. that's, that's kind of a, an important, it's not the only important one, but it's it's an important uh, signal. And one of the re reasons that people kind of, let's say, do fasted training or, or kind of avoid carbs is, is kind of the signaling benefit and that, that as a general thing, or they, an adaptation benefit. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious, um, Thinking about those different pathways that that we talked about, um, what I thought what what might be most sensitive to nutrition interventions, and and I think the free fatty acid signaling is one that definitely needs more research in. But um, I and and the contraction and induced signaling that's I, I think that's really kind of um, uh, you know it's it's not going to be affected by nutrition too much. And and the the reactive oxygen species I did measure that so, some of those is, is a 
there's a lot of different ways to measure that. And, and so I didn't find uh, too much in, in the first study I mentioned uh, with looking at one, one particular measure. So I focused on AMPK pathway. So I thought, well, it's energy sensing. Um, there's a relation to glycogen there. And so again, like we mentioned before with the, the fat oxidation, kind of did a si similar analysis to say, okay, we know um, like intensity, higher intensity exercise increases AMPK signaling and um, lower carb, low glycogen training tends to increase it. But what happens, you know, when you have high intensity and high glycogen or, you know, again, pulling multiple levers, mm -hmm. we know these three or four or five different things can affect uh, AMPK signaling, but what happens when they're, they're pulled together and what's the most important thing? And uh, what I found was um, it's really, um, and again, this wasn't novel, but kind of the analysis reinforces that, that disrupting cellular, cellular energy charge, so that ADP to ATP ratio mm -hmm. is the most important thing. Ending glycogen seems to be important too. Um, so again, going back to that, where you end, but it didn't really matter where you start or if you take carbohydrate before or during. Um, so it, like basically fed or fasted, I, I don't expect there much, to be much of any change effect on AMPK signaling. There's been studies that show both sides of that, like fasted training increases AMPK. Some so it, it had no effect. Some show decrease. Um, there's it's all over the place, but basically. Now to get it to a practical takeaway, if if you're training hard enough, so um, my my sense is uh, anything above critical power, so any kind of interval that you can do that's causing that cellular imbalance. So mm -hmm. critical power is is the demarcation point of where things don't stabilize above that point. Mm -hmm. Your physiology. So if you're basically going hard enough to disrupt your physiology, which increases the, or decreases the ATP ratio relative to AMP and ADP, you're going to turn on AMPK signaling. Um, so that's why when you see um, there's no difference with lower high glycogen training in terms of like interval training workouts mm -hmm. uh, in, in AMPK signaling, but with lower intensity training, you can see there's usually a benefit to low glycogen training on, on AMPK signaling when it's lower intensity workouts. So again, it's it basically, if you're going hard enough, I don't think it really matters what you eat beforehand mm -hmm. and from it, from a training adaptation signaling standpoint. Um, and it's the easy sessions where, um, Again, you, you kind of want to end lower. And I, again, it doesn't have to be, from my, my perspective, fasted per se, but you want to make sure that glycogen ends kind of in that lower sweet spot. And so for some individuals then with that kind of lower intensity sessions, I imagine we've got to increase the volume or get the minutes up with some of those runs or, or cycling bouts. Yeah, yeah it exactly. It, I mean, it depends on how fit you are and, and you're, you're again, running versus cycling and, and kind of, and also where you start mm -hmm. where, in, in terms of signaling, it's wh where you're starting at. So if you you know, had a, a, a carb load day and, and you have a, a big old breakfast and then you do an easy run, you're probably not going to get as much out of that session as if you've done the interval session the night before and then kept it kind of low. Again, it doesn't mean you have to be fasted in the morning, but, but kind of keeping that, that fuel tank, um, you know, let's say starting half full instead of two thirds full. For sure. And if, if we stick on the sort of general population, kind of overweight individual, uh, I had Rob Edinburgh on a few seasons back talking about some yeah. of his work with the use of, again, fasted strength training and, of course, the muscles using intramuscular triglycerides to fuel those sessions and how that was a powerful signal for things like insulin sensitivity. Just curious, you know, some of the connections between what you've done here and, and, and some of his work for the general population. Yeah. No, absolutely. Rob's, they've done awesome work. Rob's done awesome work over there and, and his PhD was really cool. Um my, my, my PhD research didn't really look at, at really any of that stuff. Um, but I, I think it's, I think there's a place for it. Um, again, because the, the main drawback from my perspective of, of fasted training is creating too big of a, a, a deficit, a within day energy balance, uh, problem 
for someone that's yeah for basically someone with a big engine that can burn a lot of calories a a a very sedentary let's say overweight person might only be able to burn three or four hundred calories an hour and so in the midst of a, a 2,000 or 2,500 yeah. calorie day, it's, it's not that big of a hole. Whereas, yeah, you get a fit person that's burning over a thousand calories an hour. That's just, it's just a huge deficit then they're going to live with for those next several hours. It's really hard to eat because most people, even if they have a good yeah. pre uh, post-workout meal, they're not still climbing out of the deficit. It, you know, they're, they're, most people aren't having more than a thousand calories at breakfast. Um, uh, well, maybe some people are, but you know, like it's, it's just people kind that's of it. gradually crawl out of that hole. So that means that the amount of time they're spent in this, within day energy deficit is um would, would just be too large so yeah so to the general population someone who's more sedentary overweight i think there's a really good probably use for it yeah it sounds like uh it's a passive weight training and then like you say some of that low slow um volume work to just be able to get levels down you know trying to end in, with those low levels would be pretty good yeah pretty, pretty good for a lot of the co- again coaches and, and performance staff who are struggling to maintain their you know, their health and weight <laughs> loss. Yeah. And I suppose even just on the joints as well, in terms of helping with less intensity or less pounding if we're talking running and that type of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So getting leading into the third section of your PhD, can you walk us through what you did there? Because it's pretty interesting to be pulling on different levers like that. Yeah. Thanks. And so the, the idea was was started by I found a couple of uh, people in my previous studies. I realized they were tracking their diet. Like this one guy was you know, for a few people, I just track their diet. Like to, to me, diet tracking is is a chore. I don't enjoy it, and and it's it's you know just don't do it. Some people actually really enjoy it. Like it's it's funny. It sounds like I think there's endurance athletes tend to be the ones if there's going to be a group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and like so these people like for no outer you know no other reason they're people at a normal weight. They're not trying to lose weight. They're just training whatever. Some people just enjoy that. And when I realized some people are tracking, they're they're wearing an aura ring or a whoop, and they're tr- they're they're tracking their their training is, is obviously pretty easy um, and their diet. And so I was like, wow, that, there's a lot of really useful information. I started kind of using this with some of the clients I work with, just this approach of like, okay, you're already tracking all this. So let's see how, you know, these kind of um, things fit together. So I realized there's enough endurance athletes out there that are doing this. I can make a pretty cool study, essentially formalize the process. And, and what I did is I, I recruited people that were already tracking their diet anyway, because I'm not going to ask someone to, you know, that doesn't track to track their diet for for even a week, let alone 12 weeks or something. Some bad data. Yeah, it'd be useless. But my feeling, and, and it's there's been some pushback from reviewers, but like um uh you know, someone that's tracking anyway, they're they're good at tracking, they they do it for their own benefit. You know, there, there's intrinsic motivation. And I mean, one guy had tracked like every day for like three and a half years and, and counting, like literally, like I mean, there's that that's probably an extreme. Yeah. They're pretty accurate. I mean, when you, when you, when you even in clinical in practice, when you listen to their diet and you see the, those types of people, it seems like it's pretty close, right? Like, yeah, there's a really tweaky yeah. type of person. Yeah. They're really, you know, they really do it. And so with that kind of motivation, so I, I yeah, like I, it was a really unique opportunity to look at um, how people are adjusting their, their food for their training for one section of the research. I had a, a few different kind of papers come of it and, and kind of a few different areas to look at, but I think what's, what's most interesting and relevant is is a great opportunity to look at. We have we have training load, um, we have dietary intake, and so we can see. You know, this are, are people adjusting their intake for their training, not just their pre-exercise nutrition, um, but generally daily nutrition. Do people match their their intake with their activity? Overall, I think uh, the answer would be not very well, um, which is which is interesting. And, and um, some people do it really well, and and you know, mean, meaning on high training load days, they're having high carb, low training load, low carb, and and you know, matching that. Um, adjusting that really well 
some people it's just like completely random. They might have 500 grams of carbs on, on a, a day. And, and we're not talking about, you know, a day before a race, but like just having, you know, 80, 80 to 90 days of data for each person, it really lets you kind of yeah. look at these patterns. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it was really um, enlightening. And so understanding the relationship of, yeah, what, what are people actually doing? Um, does it differ at, at higher levels? Um, I think that the, the higher level athletes tend to match their intake with their training better than the lower level athletes. Um, and there's, there's again, a couple of papers that are in various stages right now that um, maybe we'll come back to talk about, but um, the, the, the big overarching goal was most people aren't really paying attention. And when I would talk to people, you know, kind of after they, they most people aren't paying attention or they might say, oh, I'm going to eat a little bit more, but that that's such general advice to say, oh, eat more on hard training days and less on, on low training days. For some people, that's like adding a half a potato mm. or, you know, and for some people that's like adding like three plates of pasta, right? Like, so there's, there's no real consensus on, on how to do that. And would you say a lot of the elites when they're matching is a lot of it around the exercise in the sense that they know that they should be taking in a certain amount of gels. They also know that post they need to have something from recovery and that's, you know, accounting for a good, a good amount of that. Or what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, again, the, the level of granularity was a little tricky. I was really focused on the day level, um, gotcha. but also during exercise, uh, I did separate it out or, or, or excuse me, before exercise, I separated out before exercise and the full day um, mm -hmm. just from a reporting standpoint, I, I didn't, separate out during exercise um but it did obviously would get included in the day so yeah uh, people would take sports drinks or gels and that kind of goes into that daily total and in your opinion obviously carb periodization is becoming more and more popular in endurance sport even amongst the general population um based on what you just said they struggle inherently to to sort of change things depending on the demands now if someone's trying to lose 20 or 30 pounds and improve their blood sugars and their blood pressure you know in terms of you know your approach do you think a, a lot of periodization is required for them? Do you think it's a you know minor adjustment? Yeah, that's I think that's super important because what it's doing. I mean, generally speaking, if if you want to think like uh, how much someone's like how much should I eat? You know, your protein intake doesn't change too much. Let's just say someone is is doing um you know uh, uh, let's say a, a rec, you know some six six hours a week of endurance training, like just basically exercise a, roughly an hour a day, um or or let's I don't know six to eight hours, um. Some days, if they're changing their training, if some days are harder and longer, some people might go on a two or three hour bike uh, ride on the weekend and some days are less. Mm -hmm. um, their needs, of course, change from day to day in terms of calories. But the protein needs don't really change that much. I mean, some people might argue a little bit, but, but generally speaking, if someone is going to be around, let's just call it 1.6 grams per kilogram, I don't really think people need to change it too much from from across that type of, of week. And their fat intake does also doesn't really need to change too much if you just, let's say, you park that around one or a little over one gram per kilogram. Yeah. So what makes up the difference? Obviously, it needs to be carbohydrate. And so this approach to saying, okay, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not doing much today. My calorie needs to change. It, carbs is the easiest way to change it. So if you just lock in your protein and fat, more or less, and you're adjusting based on the carb, you, I mean, it's it's kind of the most simple. It, it sounds so obvious when you say it, but but again, it's it's not obvious to to everyone. Yeah, setting setting your protein intake is definitely one of those key pillars that helps to just be able to repeat and automate, and people get used to it and. As you mentioned, yeah. dietary fat intake for most people stays relatively stable. Uh, of course, you can adjust it a little yeah, bit. It just kind of comes along for comes the ride, along with the ride and everything less. else. Yeah, so you're left with this big swing of, you know, low carb diets from like 0.5 to one gram per kilo, all the way up to Tour de France levels of 15 to 18 grams per kilo in a tough stage. So there's a huge yeah. swing there, right? Exactly. And so for someone that's kind of might do, um, you know, some, some more training on, on a weekend, if we're just talking about kind of general population, um, or, or actually, even if we're talking about like my, my kayakers or, or, you know, some higher level athletes, like 
some days, you know, you know, they might be training twice a day on a lot of days, and some days there might be an off day on a Sunday, or um, you know, easy sessions or two or three hard sessions in a day. Like that, 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 that range is really going to vary of what they need in a day. Mm-hmm. And so, like we said, if if protein and fat are mostly fixed, and we want to match our intake with our expenditure even closely, um, then you know, obviously, then th- there's the difference in carbohydrate intake. Now, some of my, some people might say, in in relation to my my study, I mentioned. Well, maybe they were just eating. Um, they were kind of making up for it the next day. Um, two th- I, I did look at that, and I didn't really find find any relationship between food intake the day before or the day after a given training load and and their in- and, and the yeah the carb intake um, and that training load. So I don't think that that's happening very much. And also, even if it is, so let's say over the course of the week, someone is sorting it out to be become you know eat at the right amount. Um, you have a hard day and an easy day, and you under eat on the hard day and over eat on the easy day. Is that okay? Um, I guess so. But if we, that's kind of the same in my mind as if someone, um, let's say you need 2,500 calories to be in balance and you train in the morning and you eat nothing all day and eat 2,500 calories at dinner. Well, at the end of the day, you're obviously, you're, you're coming out even, but that's not ideal. Yeah. So that within day balance, I think that's a really cool area of research um, uh, that I, I haven't been involved in, but I think it's super important how you match your intake through the day matters. Mm-hmm. So if you do a ton of training in the morning and, and you don't want to leave this huge deficit, like we've talked about, you don't want to dig, a, dig yourself a big hole all day to, to only dig out of it at dinner time. That we is very clear that that's not a good pattern. So that's just scrolling back, you know, a couple steps to say, here's a bigger day of training. Why would you make up for it on the next day? I mean, it's probably better than not making up for it, but you know, like yeah. it's not ideal. Yeah. So my feeling is at least you have within day balance and you have, I guess, day-to-day balance that it's better to, to, to line that up a little bit better. And Jeff, if we, if we kind of zoom back up to 30,000 feet and just look at your work again with, with athletes across different disciplines in the last few years, you know, what are some of the common roadblocks or challenges that you might face when dealing with, you know, elite level athletes and their, their yeah. performance nutrition? Yeah. I mean, and I find this at all levels. Um, there's, there's still a bit of carb, you know, fear, car, fear around carbs. Mm-hmm. You have people, I, I, I can think of at least three or four people that like have maybe stacking on like a thousand calories of nuts because they're so, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, I just snack on almonds all day or mix nuts. And like, that is so, um, you know, easy to do and just dangerous for people because when, when you put it in perspective, say you can have like eight cups of rice or you can have all the nuts you're having. Like it just boggles people's mind. And I know the macronutrients act differently in our body and, and so on. But like, there's this fear of like, eating enough on the bigger days. So, so again, even at the high level athletes, when they, when they might be um, training two or three hard sessions in a day, um, they were kind of, I guess, big picture, people are, were kind of keeping their carbon take roughly the same from day to day. Even So even these higher level athletes, they have easy days and hard days, and they're kind of basically eating the same amount of carbs. Mm. So understanding what is your lower days, what, what do you need on those easier days? What do you need on the higher days? Also, obviously, keep in mind on the easy days, you're prepping for the next day's hard sessions or whatever. Um, but those hard sessions, people are just often afraid to kind of give themselves what they actually mm-hmm. need. And that, so that's um, and that's kind of the next area of, of research I'm going to continue on is kind of figuring out what are people actually needing? Um, what, what are people actually burning in terms of carbs during exercise? And that's that's kind of been well, I think not, not looked at appropriately yet. Um, so yeah, so to answer your question, I think the, the big roadblock or, or, or speed bump anyway, is not really, um, allowing themselves what they need on the big days. And maybe then because of that, then they're starving or overeating on the, the easy days. And for yourself in terms of strategies to help them achieve 
more fueling on those days you again start to work from the exercise about itself outwards or is there certain strategies yeah. that you might share yeah. with, with listeners yeah yeah for me um I, i'll th- i'll give um you know like a meal by meal if, if you imagine a, a a grid i guess with with each day of the week uh as a column monday Tuesday, wednesday mm-hmm. friday put in exercise sessions and you kind of have along the rows would be the, the time of day so you have pre-training training post-training breakfast to lunch snack you yeah. know so i just kind of go down the day and kind of fill in the workouts and then um kind of fill in low medium high carb meals and snacks and kind of understand color wise so usually it, it works out to there's there's kind of like two key areas of the week might be from like Tuesday after, you know, Tuesday mid-morning to, to Wednesday mid-morning where there's really need to push the throttle down with the carbs. And then maybe it's like Friday from Friday morning to Saturday or whatever. Like there's this kind of points where it ends up being, here's the big part of the week. And then here's the lower parts of the week. Um, obviously it's dictated by the training, but I'll give someone a real guide to, and, and it's adjusted for each athlete, but um, this way they know, okay, here's the meal. I really need to kind of, I can't skip or I can't, I can't kind of, just be, um, you know, it, it just allows them to be more deliberate with how they're eating and understand, okay, this is the meal I really need to go bigger on. This is the meal I can kind of, I should pull back on and, and it gives them some some clarity for that. It is amazing and interesting how it almost gives them the permission, so to speak, to sort of eat as that's many right. carbs as they would think maybe that's too many. So, you know, in terms of some of the simple sugars of the fast carbohydrates between, you know, I think you mentioned dates before, you know, obviously things like honey or gels or juices what anyone's in particular that you find yourself using with with some of your athletes yeah i i think it's i i do love dates and it's it's almost become a joke like i like i i'm always kind of pushing dates on people yeah. <laughs> and, pretty um, handy and uh but um yeah they they are um it's it's yeah personal preference i mean i think there's some great research even during exercise that it doesn't matter the form like the the gels or chews or sports drink or you know whatever suits you um sport dependent I mean, and really just personal preference Palatability, for people like clients what people like exactly and variety right. i mean for someone training you know 12 15 hours a week they, they need the variety there um but yeah i don't i mean you have the, the diet quality issues like we talked about before in terms of your food but we're talking about a certain amount around training um you know it's it's picking your battle awesome man. Well, listen we started this discussion off talking about your you know your first career in, in music and as a musician and i think that's uh, pretty appropriate you get a lot of practitioners who do kind of change careers at different points, people who write in and ask around career change and things. And so I wasn't aware that you were previously a musician. Can you touch base on, on your sort of first career and what, what was the impetus for transitioning? Because I think that's a, it's a really interesting story. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was a recording engineer and drummer. Um, worked on a lot of kind of records in you know, from about, let's say, 2000 to 2010. Um, so gosh you know bon jovi and and sting and Cheryl crow and santana and kelly clarkson and awesome. on and on um so that was great um and in nutrition i was i got gotten into cycling and um was interested in nutrition and it was kind of it was, it was great as a hobby like a just like kind of a something to focus on outside of yeah. music and and just kind of enjoyed learning and, and then it kind of got to a point where i just got progressively burnt out on music and and i was kind of thinking about what what else you know and as i was kind of I had taken some online classes in nutrition just as kind of a general interest thing. And so I just decided to um, stop doing music and um, went back to school and did my master's in nutrition and became a, a registered dietitian. And um, then I worked in a private practice setting for a while with athletes and I just wanted to kind of pursue a PhD. So then in 2019, I moved from Los Angeles to to Auckland to do that. Yeah, so that was really just kind of thinking about a new new path forward. 
curious some of your thoughts at the time when you're just about to make that decision to kind of leave all that behind, which obviously had a lot of success and pursue something different. It, it was easy because I was, I was really burned out. I mean, if you imagine a, a, a small room um, with no windows that you're in from noon to midnight most days, um, you know, high stress, uh, long hours, you know, and it was, obviously there's a lot of good sides to it, but it, it felt like um, the growth for me personally had gone down like early on, yeah. you, you kind of move up through the kind of the ranks, so to speak. And so there was, you know, the first bunch of years I was able to move up quickly and working on you know, it's good records. And um, then it got to the point where, you know, you're kind of working with these big artists. And I just felt like the, the best I could do career-wise, and, and this probably a bit short-sighted, but it was like to do the same thing for the next 30 years. I mean, I know I could have changed, but like, it just felt like, okay, there, there wasn't really... Wasn't there. And, and the trajectory wasn't... And... There wasn't there. And and then, um, yeah, and just burn. And just, yeah, the, 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 the upsides just got outweighed by the downsides and it got to a point where honestly i was so burned out i, wow. I, I literally would have rather been at the dentist's office than like even working with some of these big artists yeah, and yeah. it was it's nothing personal against any of the artists it was just kind of the you know just the the be tired of it and, and so yeah it was just kind of done and, and so it was actually kind of an easy decision i appreciate you sharing and listen as we round things out for any of the practitioners listening in you know young sports scientists any pieces of advice wisdom that you you could share um gosh yeah i mean <laughs> for me like i've taken data science as something i was completely afraid of and like computer coding before my, actually i'll tell you a quick story before my phd so i moved from los angeles to, to new zealand i had never been to new zealand before i had at that time my wife and we had a two-year-old um moving to a new country I, i'd never even visited before moving you know it's up 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 ending your world um but the thing is that the thing I was afraid of most before starting the PhD was not like related to any of those uncertainties. It was that I was going to be forced to learn how to use R, which is like a prog programming language for statistics or something. And it's kind of silly in hindsight, because you certainly could do a PhD without learning R. But like, that was literally my biggest concern. It was like, oh, I'm going to have to, because I had tried a couple like online classes and I just, it, it boggled my mind. But um, a couple months in, I, I kind of just had to use it for something. And, and um, I, I think I've used it pretty much every day, literally every day since then. And it's just completely shifted the course of my PhD. It shifted how I practice, um, shifted the projects I work on, just kind of. Um, so um, I don't know if that's advice other than just to say, be, you know, kind of having tangible, uh, uh, t tangential skills that can really help, um, you, you know, the thing you do is probably a good thing. And it sounds like it wasn't as big a dragon to slay as you might have originally thought. Is that, was that fair to say? Uh, well, it, it took me a year, about uh, about a year of using it every day. It was still pretty it was tough. Tool, but now it, it, it is a tool. And, and um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So anyway. Amazing. Awesome, Jeff. Well, listen, where's the best place for people to stay connected with you and your work? Um, yeah, I guess uh, Twitter um, is probably a good place. Or uh, my website um, is eatsleep.fit. We'll include the links in the, in the show notes as well. So again, appreciate you carving out the time. It's been great. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full video interviews, then check out the show notes at athleteperformancenutrition.com. Scroll down on the podcast tab and you'll find the full episodes and the research paper links. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.